the Board Game Workshop. I'm your host, Chris Anderson. In this episode, I interview the five finalists for the design contest. So listen to their stories about how they started their games, uh, how they got into design. And then you can head over to the website at theboardgameworkshop.com. You can click on the Board Game Workshop Design Contest 2018 logo right on the front page, and it'll bring you to the finalist page where you can look at each game's rules, their how-to-play videos, their pitch videos, um, a description of the game, and the designer or designers. And then you can judge that game and give them valuable feedback to help them improve their game in the future. So listen to their stories and go check out all the other content and then please judge them and give them feedback and you can be part of the contest. Thanks for listening. I'm here with Fertessa Scott, designer of Book of Villainy, one of the finalists in the board game design board game workshop design contest which i've messed up a lot it's too long of a name so for tessa welcome to the show hi thank you so how did you start designing games so it started like just over a year ago um i was just playing with my board game group and um my friend she's pretty creative and she mentioned that she wanted to start making a card game and for some reason, it never really occurred to me that that was a thing that you could do. So it had me start thinking about what I would do if I made a game. And it was obvious it should be about villains um, for other reasons. And uh, I decided thinking through the game and uh, that like started me down the path of figuring out how do I make a game, um, going online, finding BGG, um, and just sent me down the rabbit hole. What gave you the initial idea for Book of Villainy, because this is your first game ever, right? Yes, yes. Um, so I was inspired to do Book of Villainy because whenever I play any sort of game with my friends, especially if it's some sort of uh, um, a deduction game, they always single me out first because I just naturally look like I'm up to no good. Um, and also on a side note, I think that all of the villain designs usually tend to be cooler than the heroes. So those two just kind of combined into a game where you can be a villain. Um, and that way I can't be singled out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I definitely have to agree with that. Villains always they have a much cooler look. Right. <laughs> and then, uh, like, Disney's Villainous is doing pretty well at, uh, is it Target, I think, or Mass Market? Yeah. But um, people love villains. So I think it's, it's a great theme, and I'm really excited to finally play it. So why don't you tell us a bit about how the game plays? Okay. So, um, like I said, every player is a villain. Uh, so you start off in the center tile, which is the safe house. And like its name, you can't be attacked there. And that's the only place that you can't be attacked. And the board is made up of about 16 tiles, um, nine tiles if it's a two-player game. And you're going around on these different tiles. And when you land on them, different things happen. It could be that you're drawing cards, um, that you're building uh, roadblocks. Um, just there's different effects per tile. And uh, depending on what cards you get, you get to sabotage others or you can build inventions. But the object of the game is to build this book of villainy because you're trying to shoot your way to fame and fortune by writing this book of villainous deeds. And so the first person to collect 10 evil deeds ends the game, but the evil deeds are victory points. So who actually has the most valuable evil deeds is the one that wins. Let's go into that, because that, that's a mechanic. I've only seen it two other games I can think of, where at the end, 
you actually have a story to tell, which doesn't actually have any effect on the gameplay, but it's an exciting thing to do after the game that I think it's really, it works towards giving players a positive feeling. So even if you didn't win, you still made this story and it's it's an extra bit of fun after the game, which I think is really neat. What made you add that to the game? Was that from in there from the beginning? Is it something you came up with later on? How'd that work out? So from the very beginning, I always had this feeling that I wanted to build my own villain and it kind of evolved into the, the evil deeds. Um, because the storytelling was really important to me. So when I came up with these evil deeds, which is maybe by the third or fourth prototype, um, people really responded to these kind of things that you could do, like steal candy from a baby, then tell it was tell it it was because it was too fat. Um, things like that. Um, and at the end of the game, you get to read all the, the evil deeds that you collected. And I just found that players really enjoyed kind of reveling in the evil deeds that they managed to collect. Do you find that player, even if they don't win, like they still enjoy having that story? Yes, because um, usually they don't even wait until the end. Um, people will try and read them during the, during the game um, just because they enjoy seeing what kind of villain they are as the evil deeds may vary um where it could be something that's food related like making somebody a uh, red velvet cake but without cream cheese uh frosting um that's or, evil <laughs> um it could be something completely different like i mentioned with the evil deed before so it just it suits everyone's personality i think everyone has that kind of mischievous um part inside of them that that can uh, really appreciate that so your game it's it's about villains but it's it's pretty lighthearted. it's not real evil like you're talking about like stealing candy from a baby and giving them a cake with no frosting right so how how was it keeping the humor in and i guess writing humor can be really tough especially in a format like a board game so was that difficult or is that something that comes naturally to you i guess i would say it's more natural than not um because i've always liked creative writing so the theme was first for me and the mechanics later especially because this was my first game and really my first deep dive into the hobby so i was very weak on mechanics the the first prototype of this game looked like a monopoly board that's a place a lot of people start <laughs> exactly uh, as i learned quickly through iterations it finally became a, a, a an entirely different game on its own but the theme was always there and that's always been the strong point so the comedy that's what i found personal joy in so it was easy for me to keep that and and you know maybe refine it to be a little punchier or um fitting with how the game evolved but that part wasn't difficult for me so the the comedy was there basically from the beginning before the game itself even really came together right yeah exactly was the name there from the beginning book of villainy or is that something that came after you decided on the making the story bit of it yeah that actually was there from the beginning whenever i started out I think I mentioned that I wanted to build my own villain. So my very first idea was kind of everybody would literally build a villain where it was stickers and you you get to get the cool trench coat or maybe the top hat and the monocle and you could put the stickers together in the book because I wanted it to be whoever won at the end could look back at the unique villain that they had made and, and just see visually what it was. Because again, I love the villain character designs. But that was a bit ambitious, and it became a story. So the evil deeds told the story of what kind of villain you were. In your How to Play, you talked about Super Fleek and bribing him with pizza. Yes. How does that all work? 
I can't quite remember how the vision of Superfleet came. I just knew that I wanted the most obnoxious looking person you could ever see um, to be drawn. And I got my friend to draw him. And I felt like he also needed an equally obnoxious name, which Fleek, Super Fleek, help, come on. And his origin story was that he was a superhero in this town of just completely overrun with villains however he was only a superhero because he had the power of flight and his flight was purely flatulence from eating pizza 24 7 so that's why you can bribe him with pizza and he can fly but only two feet off the ground again because it's flatulence have you made any changes to the game through the rounds i know you've been working on it for you said about a year like after round one has any of that feedback helped and changed the game since then Yes, actually. Um, I made a pretty, uh, pretty well, I guess it, it seems like a big change to me. But um, previously, my two-player board was the same as my three- and four-player board. However, um, I was able to, with some great playtester friends, trim it down so that it was nine tiles instead of the 16 to get um, punchier play. And um, I also, with the pizza tokens, because it was always kind of a... Not a sore point, but the pizza tokens were always a little bit clunky because they put a lot of emphasis on Superfleek. And he was just like a, a smaller part in the entire game. So I changed the pizza tokens into pizza cards. Um, and it should be a little bit easier to explain how Superfleek works um, to people whenever they are playing the game. So that was probably the two the two bigger changes, um, which cut down on time as well. Cool. Always nice when it gets faster to get to the fun part. Yeah, and I noticed the the judges mentioned the tokens because they had a question about it, and also um, they had questions about the the ninety minutes because originally I quoted that it was sixty to ninety minutes, but um, that was with an asterisk. <laughs> <laughs> That does sound a bit long for the, the feel you're going for. Yeah. Uh, the, and it also, when it got to that 90-point part, it was uh, because the players would get so into it that they would purposefully stall the game. Yeah. And it happened about two, three times. That was the asterisk, but with the changes, it should it trimmed it down to around the 45-minute mark, which was what was suggested. Yeah, 45 sounds good for the feel, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that, that definitely um, helped because I, I wasn't really targeting a, a duration time um, until the judges really kind of helped me hone that down. So as a first-time designer, how's it been for, like, getting playtesting? Do you just play with your group? Are you part of any uh, game designer groups now? Or, like, how's that journey been for you? That has actually been, like, journey is the perfect word for that. Um, because I'm very much an introvert and, um, game design has, has been pushing me out of that, um, or rather not allowing me to be the introvert that I want to be. The anime convention that I went to about a little over a year ago, I, I took my game for the first time. So that was my first time playtesting it outside of my little gamer group. And my gamer group is just me and two other introverted friends. <laughs> and, um... At that one con that one convention, I could only get one person to playtest my game. However, there was a game designer there who is the biggest extrovert that I know, and he networked me to so many people. I have been to every single gaming convention almost in Georgia, 
um, over the past year. I have been to gaming parties. I've joined three different gaming groups, and I've been active on Board Game Geek for an entire year. Um, <laughs> so the game design process has been amazing to me because people know my name. I know people's names. I've I just it's just really warm and welcoming. And um, it's just a, it's just an entirely different atmosphere because I've been kind of the person that always searched for a club that just clicked with me and it never quite did. But game design and, and just gaming groups are fun. Yeah, it's a, it's a great community. I'm, I'm the same way. I'm an introvert. And here I am with a podcast for going on two years, two years. It's been a long time. But um, yeah, it's a great community, I think. Overall, the board game community is very nice, although there are some problems in areas that everyone is well aware of. But I think game design is an even nicer subset of those people because they're not just playing, they're creating. And a lot of them understand the joy and struggle that creating brings with it. So they're they're all very willing to help. They're always like everyone wants to introduce you to someone else that can help you. So it's a very tight knit community. It's still a small community. So a lot of people know most people. And once you get in, you meet one person, they introduce you to three people. Those three people introduce you to 10 more. Before you know it, you know half the industry. It is a very welcoming community, I found. You're right in that you know one person and suddenly you know five more. And and I found that really interesting. And it just feels like a, a less pressured network social experiment I don't know yeah that's a way to put it like networking because I've I've never been good at networking in any other industry but in board game design you can't not network because you're playing people's games you you have to meet people they're playing yours and then before you know it you have more connections exactly so how is the design community in Georgia I don't know if I know of many uh, conventions down that way um, it's actually it's pretty cool and actually the the designers that I I did get to meet um, at the there's one unpub that's in Georgia called proto ATL and at that one there were a lot of people that drove in from like Florida and um, and from neighboring states and so um, as far as the local ones it's just the I would say the guy that I met at the original anime convention and maybe he's introduced me to five others that are local and um i don't know is uh <laughs> i see i see our our local designers at the at the conventions not so much at my my game my um gaming groups but i would say that it's small but it's definitely there just that we're very spread out so there's not there's not like a a group that meets on a weekly monthly basis specifically for design but i wish there was and if there was or if there is which there could be i haven't found them yet i would like to know about them i know we're we're lucky up here in massachusetts i have two design groups i'm part of this part of the country is very congested so you can't go that far without meeting a bunch of people so everyone is all we're packed tightly together. <laughs> yeah, my um, most of my designing tips come from um, just my my lead play testers. So my my gaming group, the two introverted friends that I mentioned, they're both trying to design. It's it's kind of interesting because I've gone on to design kind of this board game, um, and my other friend is trying more towards a deck builder, and the other friend is trying to do an RPG. So we're all kind of <laughs> trying different types of tabletop games that's great you make your own design group yeah <laughs> well that's about all the time we have so is there anything else you want to mention before we close this up i'm very glad that you had me on the show and i'm very honored to be 
in these uh, in this final round. Um, if you're interested in Book of Villainy, I'm on Facebook, uh, Instagram, and Twitter. Um, at Book of Villainy is my handle. And um, also, there's a bookofvillainy.com. And I'm also on Board Game Geek with a work in progress thread. So um, you can find me anywhere online. Um, <laughs> I'm extroverted online. And uh, yeah, I, I hope that you will get to be a villain one day and play the game. Awesome. I do look forward to playing it. Like I said, I love the having a story at the end. That's a great mechanic. I look forward to playing it in, oh, it'd be about a week from now, I think. Thanks for coming on and good luck in round three. Thank you very much. I'm here with Eric J. Francis, designer of Calligraphy, one of the finalists in the Board Game Workshop Design Contest. Eric, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Chris. So let's start with how'd you start designing games? Well, I, I think I started the way a lot of other designers did, which is I played a bunch of games and thought, gosh, wouldn't this be fun to do? Uh, I think the first game I tried designing was a uh, one called Capture the Badger, which is an asymmetrical, I thought it was a family weight, fun little light game until I took it to Game Makers Guild and somebody said, no, this is an abstract strategy game and it's definitely heavier than family weight. So I have been uh, going through ideas and trying to find something with a little better, a uh, little clearer focus and wound up with calligraphy. So this is only your second game design? This is my third. Uh, I had another one in between called Cabin Pressure about passengers on the world's worst commercial airline trying to get off with as much of their happiness intact as possible and that one's uh, just been on the back burner for a while. So what gave you the initial idea for calligraphy? I, I kind of wish I'd written down the moment I had the the lightning bolt or brainstorm or whatever it was, but I think it basically boils down to I really like Uwe Rosenberg's tile-laying games. Uh, I found Patchwork years ago and immediately fell in love with it because it was both so simple and so challenging. And I was... Uh, I imagine I was just thinking, what would I do if I was doing a tile laying game? And also, what's a what's a theme that's underused? And uh, many years ago, I was a, a dorky medievalist. I was a member of the Society for Creative Anachronism and liked to dress up in medieval clothing and act in medieval ways on the weekends. And I know lots of people still involved in the SCA and many people who are phenomenal calligraphers and illuminators. And at some point, the, the two things, tile laying and making scrolls, kind of collided in my brain. And I guess that's where the spark happened. It's a really unique theme. And I too love like the polyomino laying games. It's I think it's a really interesting mechanism that there's a lot of design space around, and the the theme is definitely unique. I mean, I maybe Biblios is kind of adjacent, but that's a very different game. Yeah, it definitely looks unique, and I have, despite being in the Game Makers Guild with you, I have not had a chance to play this yet. So I'm really looking forward <laughs> to being able to play it for the finals. I, I would I would love to be able to sit down with you and play it, but I will be more than happy to send you the game and let you play it yourself. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure I'll end up playing it a couple times over the next couple of years as you develop it. But um, awesome. So speaking of the game, why don't we go into depth on how it works? What are the rules? How do we play this? Well, in calligraphy, you are medieval scribes who are all striving to create the most impressive scroll and be named the royal calligrapher. And you do this through a couple of mechanisms I really love, which are, are resource acquisition and allocation and tile laying. You have five different actions that you can do in a turn. And I have borrowed something from Race for the Galaxy where 
you have the primary player who chooses the action and gets to do that action with a bonus, and then everyone else on that same turn can do the base action. So every turn, somebody, everybody has something to do, which was really important to me. And those actions are you're going to solicit for supplies, where you roll dice, the uh, active player gets to choose all of the, or gets to receive all of the supplies shown on the d- dice, and then the other players get to receive supplies from three dice of their choice. So there's the bonus for the active player and the uh, base action for the following players. You also have to plan your scroll, and that involves choosing tiles from the tile mats, and there are several different types of tiles, text, illumination, gilded, capitals, border tiles, and you choose those and put them on your scratch pad. You do not immediately place them on your scroll and build them. And the idea behind that is that it gives you a chance to kind of plan ahead and collect the supplies you're going to need to execute that plan. The next action you can choose is to craft your scroll, where you actually place the tiles on your player mat and discard the supplies that you need to place those tiles. And you do have both a limited number of tiles and a limited number of supplies. And the supplies are consumed as you place your tiles. So you're looking at a dwindling pool of supplies, which is going to impact what parts, what tiles you choose for your scroll as the game progresses. But you're also looking at a dwindling selection of tiles. So you have to plan on the fly just a little. Uh, Another action you can take is to correct an error on your scroll. Once you place a tile, it stays there. You can't relocate it. But if you decide you would be better off getting rid of it and making room for something else that would allow you to, say, finish your scroll ahead of a competitor, then you can correct that. The main player gets to discard one tile from their scroll and place a new tile, but they also have to place a mishap tile, which is a little one-by-one square that scores you a minus one point at the end of the game. And then the following players can, if they wish, uh, correct an error on their scroll by discarding a tile, but they don't get to place a replacement tile. They only place a mishap. And then the final action you can take, which is one that was in the earliest version of the game and which I'm bringing back in after my latest playtest is a a barter action where you can trade some of the supplies you have for some supplies you need. And there, the active player will get to do this twice if they choose it and the following players once. There's also a mechanism where the following players, if they decide not to take certain actions, if they decide to pass on, say, planning their scroll or crafting their scroll or correcting an error, they can take some supplies. So it gives them an option in case uh, the active player decides to craft a scroll and I don't have any tiles ready to place, then I can at least take a few supplies to make up for it. Uh, There are rules regarding tile placement. Uh, You cannot place certain tiles next to certain other tiles. And there are uh, scoring rules. For instance, there are capital letters that you can place, but they won't score unless you have a tile with text next to them. And at the end of the game, uh, there are two, uh, two scoring mechanisms. First of all is simply point values for the tiles. Uh, they range from one to three points each depending on the type of tile. And then there are uh, majority bonuses. So if you have the most text tiles, uh, you get a, a seal 
that has a bonus on it. If you have the most gilded tiles, you get a seal for that. And depending on the number of players, you can uh, have as many as three different seals for each bonus in the game. So say four, two, and one points for having the most second and third illuminated tile. And uh, overall, uh, you can play up to five players as of my most recent play test in less than an hour, say 45 minutes to an hour. And uh, I think it's got a, a lot of appeal and a lot of replayability. I really like the um, simultaneous turns, like you're saying, with Race for the Galaxy. Like, Race for the Galaxy is one of my favorite games of all time, and it was kind of the first game that got me into the hobby, but not really. It was early on. So you said you were adding stuff back in after your latest playtests, so I know this contest has gone on very long with multiple rounds and feedback, and one of the things I hoped for it was people making changes to their games in between rounds to hopefully improve it. Well, the I think the biggest change I've made from the beginning is I've been calling this a two to four player game. I started playtesting just with myself about two weeks ago, uh, a slight variation for five players. And normally on two of the main actions you take, uh, planning your scroll where you're choosing your tiles and crafting your scroll where you're placing your tiles. Originally, the active player would either plan two tiles or craft two tiles and the following players would craft one. Well, when when I tried that with five players early on, it took well over an hour to finish the game, and I think that's too long for what this game is supposed to be. So the rule change I implemented and tested at Game Makers Guild this past week was I increased the number of tiles. So now when you plan your scroll as the active player, you can take up to three tiles. And when you craft your scroll as the active player, you can place up to three tiles. And then the following players can plan or craft up to two tiles. And this worked really well because we had a five-player playthrough that finished in 49 minutes at the last GMG meeting. And, and that was just a, a huge, huge thing for me because I realized five players is sort of a magic number for a lot of games. And I feel like that will expand the appeal of this game and broaden its audience. So I'm actually implementing that change throughout all player counts to make even the two and three and four player games move a little faster. So now I'm anticipating a four player game is going to take less than 45 minutes, uh, which has been averaging about 45 to 50 minutes for four players until now. Uh, and then the other thing I've added back in from the very early days was the the barter for supplies function. Because even though you have, as a following player, the opportunity to get supplies uh, really almost on every turn, that's very small amounts of supplies and not always what you need. So this will give the players a little more flexibility, I think. And in the end, the, the fun in this game, I think, is going to be looking down at your completed scroll and going, wow, I made that. If you don't have, say, gold leaf, when you need gold leaf, and you're not going to finish the scroll you want to finish, the game's going to be less fun. So I'm hoping to avoid that altogether by giving the players extra opportunity to obtain the supplies. What is the actual end game trigger? Is it when people finish their scroll or are they going to possibly have some gaps left? Well, the way it works is there are two end game triggers. Uh, the first one is actually sort of the secondary trigger, which is if you run out of any one type of supply and those supplies are ink, paint, and gold leaf, 
if someone requests supplies and can't fulfill that request, that is a game end right there. But I've tried to engineer it to where that almost never happens uh, because, again, the fun is being able to complete your scroll. So the primary way the game ends is there are uh, what I call royal seals in the game. They are bonus seals, bonus tiles that are given out as players finish their scroll. And there's three royal seals. The first player who finishes their scroll covers completely their 8 by 10 grid with tiles, takes the highest value royal seal, and then everyone else has to place a mishap tile. So not only does the first player to finish get the best bonus, there's a slight penalty for the other players, but it also helps them to a tiny degree because it's one less space they have to cover to finish their scroll. Uh, and this continues with the, the next player to complete their scroll, gets the second royal seal, and then when the third royal seal is taken, that ends the game, and you score from there. If the game ends and someone does have empty spaces on their scroll, are they penalized for that, or they're only penalized for the mishaps? They're only penalized for the mishaps. Uh, the original version of the game had a uh, minus one penalty for every square that was not covered, but I found that was a little too harsh. Uh, they Because they don't cover a square, where they lose a scoring opportunity there anyway, and I think that was enough. Sounds really exciting. I really am looking forward to playing this, and I know you do all of your artwork by hand, which gives it this <laughs> unique style. I, I think, like I know it's, I it's very it, much prototype artwork and you know simple icons, but like the the color pencil and stuff, it, like it really is a nice style. Well, thank you. You're very kind. Calling it artwork is probably a bit of a stretch. No, no. I, I, I really do anticipate uh, using very talented calligraphers and illuminators to create the art for this game. And from the very beginning, I've realized that while I want the gameplay to be fun and engaging, it's the art, I think, that is really going to draw people back again and again. And so I'm planning to have unique art for virtually every tile. Uh, the tiles with text on them, the different shaped tiles will probably have the same text, but for instance, the illuminated tiles, uh, even though I have four of each shape of those tiles, I want a different illumination on every one of those. So truly, every single scroll is going to be unique. Even if you create the exact same pattern, game after game, you are not going to be drawing the exact same tiles in those games, and your scroll will still have a different look to it. Uh, I think with Final Art, it's going to have a absolutely smashing table presence. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I mean, even because I've seen you run this at conventions too, and people are always stopping to look at it, like even with your prototype art. So it's once you get final art, like it's definitely something that could attract people at a convention. I sure hope so. But um, that's about all the time we have for this. So you want to give any contact info if anybody wants to follow along and get more information about the project as it continues? Absolutely. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter and on Instagram at Calligraphy Game. And I can be contacted via email at eric.francis at yahoo.com. And uh, also on the Game Makers Guild Facebook page. Uh, I'm one of the people who haunts that regularly, and I'm always happy to respond to any questions or comments, whether it's about the game or somebody who's interested in Game Makers Guild. Love to talk to you. Thanks for coming on the show, and good luck with round three. Thank you, Chris, and thanks for the contest. I'm 
I'm here with Chris Glenn, designer of Dragon Family, one of the finalists in the Board Game Workshop Design Contest. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So how'd you get started designing games? Uh, that's an excellent question. Um, I mean, I think a lot of us who are gamers, uh, you end up being a little mechanics oriented, just kind of how tabletop works, because you're asked to play out things. Um, and at some point, you got to ask yourself if like you have something to contribute. Uh, and I, I, I really did. Uh, I really felt like I wanted to create and explore through that. Uh, and once I started, I really couldn't stop because I realized it was this mega hobby that incorporated all these things I was passionate about in one thing. And then I've, I've just been making things. I love making things. So this isn't your first design, right? You actually, you entered two games in the contest? Yes. For this contest, I entered uh, Dragon Family and another game called Degrees of Darkness. I, have you worked on any others? Oh, yeah. Um, many. Uh, I kind of spent my first year as a, like, serious game designer focused on uh, one game, and I really went deep on that, and that was a really great experience, and I love that game. Um, and then after that, I decided this isn't a great place. Um, I have more ideas I want to explore. So I kind of set a goal of myself uh, uh, to create something new every month, more or less. Um, so to, to take an idea off the, the list and, you know, prototype it, put it in front of people, iterate on that, and then, I mean, if it's going well, keep going, but be willing to either way, whether it's going well or not, shelve it and move on to the next thing. And so Dragon Family was a pretty early version of that, of, of, the, of me starting down that path that followed on me making actually another towel lane game right before it. So I was kind of in a towel lane groove and I went from um, squares to hexes and, and that's kind of where, where Dragon Family started. Um, but yeah, I have, I have lots of designs. Um, I'm, I'm trying to just create lots of things and then see what sticks. So what gave you the idea for Dragon Family originally? Well, it started from the from wanting to make another tile laying game. So, like I said, I was making one with squares and wanted to do hexes, but um, that's kind of a dry mechanical start. I usually am uh, very theme first in how I try to approach things. I try to make this. Uh, I want the best pairing of mechanics and theme. Um, and a lot of the origin for Dragon Family, I can actually place on my daughter, who um, I think she was, she was four at the time. Uh, so she she's basically the creator director behind Dragon Family. She came up with the uh, theme. Um, I was working on this tile lane game where I wanted to make a map with uh, lane hex tiles and I made a set of tiles for that and I made art for that and I was just playing around with it and then she and I were playing with those and she was telling stories with them um, and that's that's where it really started to gel. Like there's this thing about uh, kids they're great at telling stories, they're great at narrative, they're great at just play. And having them watching what they do intuitively with components, that you can come up with so much that way. So like I had this early idea for a thing and I had a, a tile lane engine, but the thing that gave it heart and narrative was just watching her play with these pieces, tell these stories about dragons that like grew up, which to her lens is like, ooh, they went from one year old to two year old and that's a big deal when you're a little kid it's doubling your age i know it's huge um and so she was telling those stories and i'm like no that's 
that's the game. Like what she's doing is the game. It's about going through that progression of, of having this ownership of this like attachment to these creatures and then finding a home for them. And the, the map making is the, the canvas on which you do that. Um, so, so, so much of the inspiration I, I, I owe to her as far as what, what gave it, I, I think it's, it's edge, not that it's edgy, but you know what I mean? Like it's, it's angle. So why don't you tell us how the game works? Yeah. So, um, the game is mostly, so you have a hand of these hex tiles and the tiles are a couple different terrain types so you've got these forest tiles you've got these mountain tiles sometimes you get these town tiles and then there's a whole bunch of water tiles the water tiles are um they have different combinations of edges and you need to actually play them in a way that uh, creates shapes that make sense uh and so you've got these things that you're you're laying down to make a map uh you know kind of imagine like a a fantasy map that's kind of got all these organic shapes and these these different regions. But you're doing this for the purpose of creating territory that you're going to raise baby dragons in. So the first thing you need to do is like get an egg. Uh, and once that hatches, you immediately start have, having to uh, feed that egg, that that baby dragon, that hatchling. And dragons uh, in this world are notoriously picky eaters. So they only want to eat certain types of food. Each of them wants their own, own particular type of food. And this is where the meat of the game comes in because whenever you place a tile, you're going to gain some of those food resources. Uh, but you gain the food resources of what is adjacent to the tile that you're playing, not the tile you're playing. Um, and it forces you to create these organic shapes and help other people and go through all these uh, situations to that are roundabout to get what you actually need, which is the resources to feed those dragons. Once you've, uh, you feed them slowly, turn over turn, giving them one of those resources. And when they are uh, big enough, so when they have enough resources, they have three, um, you're allowed to move them to the board. And uh, this is called creating a layer for them. And this is where things kind of can get cutthroat because dragons are territorial um, and you want to give them a territory that is big and of the type they like. So you want your green dragon to move into the giant forest. But once the forest has been claimed, no one else can take it. So there's this rush to get the biggest territories and then this whole side game of trying to join those territories together, um, doing kind of Carcassonne-style rules of um, creating connecting people pieces after they've already been claimed. And so that's where things get um, highly strategic is how you approach those territories and how you try to worm your way into other people's uh, space. Um, so the game game plays out, uh, though, very lightly. You're generally just playing a tile each turn, getting some resources, and then, you know, trying to form your plan for the long game. Uh, the whole thing takes place over about uh, 30 minutes. Uh, plays light and breezy, so it's uh, light, lightweight, family-friendly. There's no reading required uh, if you've been taught the game, so it can play with a variety of ages. Um, and it's it's a good game if you're just looking to lay back and uh, play some tiles. That mechanism you have for collecting the resources where when you explore and place a new tile, you collect one from each adjacent tile. That looks really neat to me. And it, I feel like it gives you this like just quick little puzzle that's not too heavy, but you have just a couple different strategic options. You're like, oh, if I go here, I can get green and blue. And if I go over this way, I'll get the gold. And then you're also thinking about what opportunities are you giving or preventing your opponents from getting. I think that's a really neat mechanism. I look forward to trying it out. Yeah, there's the, that came together. I had a, a time in the game where you got the resource uh, that you played and the adjacent ones. And the economy was all mixed up. I didn't like it. 
um, and it wasn't encouraging the right things. And it, what I wanted to get back to is my goal of creating organic shapes. Like I wanted the flow of the tiles coming out of your hand to make something that looked like a map at the end. And part of that is forcing you to make non-ideal decisions, not non-optimal, um, and do things that help your your neighbors uh, that are also fueling your needs as well. Like you're playing this forest tile because you think you're going to move in and, and do the green forest, but you, you, you need to also get the food to feed that green dragon you're going to put there. And putting, putting the forest doesn't actually help with that. Um, so there's a number of layered decisions in there, but it's also not overwhelming, if that makes sense. You can kind of just jump in and, and play some tiles and not worry about it. Try to get the most out of each play, and that's that's okay too. But there's there are, there are layered decisions in there. So you say it's a light game and you can just jump in and place tiles. So is there... There's no penalties for anything, right? What happens if you... Because you said you need to feed your dragons. If you don't have the right cubes... What happens? Nothing bad. Nothing bad happens. Uh, which, for what it's worth, is not what I had earlier in the design. I was like, "Oh, that should be bad. You should, you know, starve the dragon, uh, and they should shrink in size." And that was just way too dark. Especially as people grew attached to these things, and I and I start having to tell them like, "Oh no, they grow, they grow smaller, and then they run away." No, it turns out that um, the lost opportunity cost is is punishment enough. Like you don't need anything more than that. So there's there's no bad thing that happens when you don't feed your dragons. It's 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 all it's all fine they'll they'll grow bigger later it's fine so how's the scoring work uh so scoring um is pretty simple uh you get three points for every dragon that you just get to the board so it, every dragon that you get into a layer is worth a good bump of points and then you get one point for each tile in the territories that control so if you've you've claimed this big uh five tile forest with your green dragon that's gonna be three for the green dragon and five for the forest so eight for that dragon plus whatever else you've got going on um the scoring is is intentionally not it, it shouldn't get into too high numbers because I don't want the math to get crazy. It's not that kind of game. Um, so uh, I have this thing actually right now in the design. If every number in the game is three, uh, if there's a number you have to remember, it's three. So you know, three points for a dragon. Your hand of tiles is three. The cost to buy an egg is three. Maybe I'll have to drop that at some point uh, if it doesn't work out balance wise. But so far, it's been I've been able to hold it. So it just makes things easy to remember. Works for people who are more casual. It's 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 helpful. Yeah, that's great when you you don't have to remember multiple things and just makes it easier to pick up and you want a light game for the family to play then that really works out yeah yeah and the scoring hasn't had a uh, even though the the numbers are low it doesn't tend to go to ties often and the tiebreakers are pretty reasonable they're things that you want to be doing and can plan on doing so what are the uh, point spreads usually for a game they go into the 20s low 20s generally uh high teens it depends on how things go um whether someone is allowed to claim kind of a territory that goes out of control there's there's this thing where you can, if someone's working on a large territory and they're working on growing it throughout the game and you and you just let that happen the scores will get much higher than if they don't um so as you work with more experienced players there's a lot more uh, blocking involved either blocking or joining you're either gonna like play some tiles that make it hard for them to grow that territory or you're going to say that's great i'm glad you're working on this i'm going to create an adjacent territory and i'm going to join it to yours and we're going to be best friends yeah so you mentioned the joining before too um 
So how does that work? Is it like if someone has the majority of dragons, they take it, or is it just a split? Or it's a friendly friendly ties. So um, if you have a territory uh, and someone else has a territory, so you're both working on some mountains, uh, and those are then later joined by a mountain tile, you are now both scoring the both of the the, the, the entirety there because it's all one big territory. The trick is that you can't add a dragon after it's already been claimed, but you can claim a separate separate territory and join them. So it's this kind of uh, tri- tricky strategy for, for advanced players. Um, people who are familiar with Carcassonne um, uh, uh, bring it up all the time. They're like, oh yes, yes, I'm familiar with that. So there's no incentive for a third player to join two other players because they're just giving both of them more points. Yes, unless it, it happens to you know raise them up to be at the point level of the other players. So if you've got a very large territory, you can take away that advantage by just also scoring that territory. So that is almost all the time we have for this. Um, is there anything else you would like to mention before we close this up? No. I mean, I, I, I'm i really excited to uh, give you an opportunity to play the game. Uh, I hope you like it. Um, I think it's mostly intact from what it was in the second round. There's a, a minor change I've been playtesting um, that's it's the sort of thing you probably don't notice on, you know, the first game, but like, you know, with repeated plays, you try to iron these things out. Um, just trying to give people enough choice so that uh, experienced players can not feel under the uh, influence of too much randomness. It's always a thing to get like the right amount of randomness that so you get these organic play states, but also uh, not lead to frustrating situations. So it's pretty much the game as, as offered in round two with minor tweaks. Uh, and I think it'll be great. I think you'll enjoy it. I'm looking forward to it. Like, like I said, I'm really interested in that resource mechanic and I'm a fan of Carcassonne. So, you know, any tile laying is always fun. Yeah. If that's, if that's your jam, then I think this will really work for you. Awesome. So, uh, any contact info you want to give out for people to follow along with your project and your other stuff you're working on? Yeah. Um, I, I actually, uh, at first reluctantly, but now enthusiastically use Twitter. Uh, but, uh, only, I use it only for board game purposes. Like it is a hundred percent board game design on my Twitter. So if you are interested in that, it will be content that you're interested in. And if it's not, you shouldn't follow me. And you're probably not listening to this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but for that narrow audience, um, I think it's good. Uh, so I'm on Twitter as uh, Chris underscore Glenn. Um, it should be on the the webpage that's uh, linked with the contest. I think you put that up there. Um, but yeah, feel free to follow me. Um, I I post all sorts of design minutiae. Uh, and I'm always happy to talk about that kind of stuff because I love it. Well, thank you for coming on the show and good luck with round three. I look forward to playing your game. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm here with John Jewell, designer of Floating Market Mischief and a finalist in the Board Game Workshop Design Contest. John, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks, Chris. Glad to be here. So what got you started designing games? So I've been a game designer my whole life. I designed games when I was a kid. I had three siblings and my parents would also play with us. And so I've always used that as sort of a creative outlet rather than visual arts or other things. So in in general... I have a lot of ideas and until about two years ago I never really felt like I could act upon them um, but I, uh, I guess I woke up one morning and my brain was just full of ideas for a different game and I felt like I had to do something about it. And I had heard about the sort of Kickstarter self-publishing world. So I felt like, wow, maybe this is something anybody could do. Um, So it's been a really incredible experience and a, a big 
ever-changing journey uh, over the last two years, but I've actually sort of changed tack um, substantially. Uh, my original goal was to have a kickstarted game of my own, and the more I've learned from other successful designers, I think I want to have my first game bought by a publisher and see what happens from there. So um, I've been expanding what I'm working on. I've spent a lot more time on my other ideas beyond that first game that I spent over a year on and I bought artwork and did a lot of things that maybe you shouldn't do for your first game, but it was definitely a passion project and we'll see if it ever turns into something. Cool. Yeah. It's, I find that once you get into game design, like you start so raw and so excited and then you jump into things and do a lot of wrong things, but you're still enjoying it and you learn as you go and it really is a journey. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So what gave you the idea for floating market mischief? So I had an idea for a very different game. It was actually kind of a mini game within a game uh, that had to do with a, a tile placement system that's breaking down or decaying as, as time goes on, as players move around. And I was thinking about it as sort of like a spaceship that's falling apart, but I was uh, a little worried that the theme was over overdone there are a ton of space games and i was thinking about other um systems in in the world that have this uh this idea that they could sort of have different components that are all interlinked but as they um as they change their interaction to each other can um degrade or destabilize the system um, and so that led me to a really fond memory i had of a vacation that i took about eight years ago to thailand and i got to see the floating market in bangkok where all these boats tie together and um, that sort of set me down a new path where i was thinking okay this could be a completely different game on its own um, something that could be lighthearted and fun and fast family friendly um, and that led into what later became this game I was looking through all the entries earlier and as far as I can tell you have the only dexterity game in the contest so that's it's a little surprising but as we were talking about earlier I mean they are pretty rare and not the easiest things to design uh, what are some of the special considerations you have to do for a dexterity game? So was that more difficult than other designs you've worked on? Well, to start, I designed it as more of a strategic game that had luck-based elements related to stealing from the boats, the monkeys stealing from a boat, and does the boat capsize or not? And in my first prototype that I was just playtesting by myself, I was rolling dice and it was really dry and really boring. And so I went looking around the house for some other way to simulate the uncertainty of grabbing something out of a floating uh, boat. And I found this beautiful 
bowl that I'd been keeping my coins in, which is, it's a monk bowl from um, Bangkok where they collect alms uh, in these bowls. And I thought, whoa, what if I balanced this and grabbed something out of the bowl? Um, so it didn't, the idea was originally pretty far from a dexterity game, but I realized very quickly that the dexterity element was what set this game apart and uh, made it uh, interesting, made it exciting. You really got your heart racing a little bit. And I was talking to my wife about it and we quickly realized that the most fun that she had playtesting a later version was like when the bowl was tottering and it almost fell and that's that's when I decided okay I gotta double down on the uh, the dexterity element and since then I've been trying to get it in front of my neighbor's kids um, try and get it in front of non-gamers people who might be more interested in a dexterity game, something lighter. And they've had a, a great reception, which is exciting, but I also spend most of my time playtesting it alone because I don't have a ton of free time to playtest with others. And so it's sort of this difficult um, balance where, okay, I'm getting really good at this game, uh, which is bad for playtesting because I need other people who aren't excellent at grabbing cubes out of a a tottering bowl. Yeah, it does add a different element to the testing where it it becomes a, a physical skill that you can learn from practice. So unlike strategy games where you can, to a degree at least, go through the math, you can make spreadsheets, you can figure out the po- range of possibilities. When it comes to the laws of physics and people's skills, it's very, it's very hard to figure that out exactly. Specifically with the balancing mechanic, so can you describe exactly how it works? Sure. So uh, the idea of the game is that you and the other monkeys have taken over Bangkok's floating market. And in the game, there's a, a tableau of fruit boats that are all connected to each other with ropes. And uh, when you send a monkey to a fruit boat, you're going to try and steal fruit and additional monkeys, uh, your, your cousins, um, and... and at the end of the game, the most points is uh, associated with the, the fruits that you've collected. But um, the way that the stealing happens is the core of the game. This is where the dexterity element comes in. So this round-bottomed bowl is full of fruit cubes, uh, which are different colors and they have different markings on them. Uh, and then other colored cubes which represent each family of monkeys for the different players and so you you balance the round bottom bowl on top of a cube and these are little um, uh, 10 millimeter I forgot the dimensions they're they're small cubes and so it's a precarious and sort of nervous effort just to get the bowl balanced upon a cube Um, And then once it's on there, you have to reach in and grab just the fruit that that your monkey is on, uh, on the boat of. So if you send your monkey to a banana boat, you can only steal the yellow banana fruits or recruit more monkeys of your 
your monkey cousins, your monkey family. So right now, you have it balancing on a cube. If you went into full production, would you want some different item to balance on to make it easier or harder? Or do you think the cube works well and that's probably what it should be? So one of the things that I played with a lot is the difficulty of the dexterity element. And what I settled on was actually a a change which I've been testing since the original submission a month or so ago, which is that at the beginning of the game, players can decide whether they want to start easy, medium, or hard. Um, So with easy, you would get to take three cubes and position them in such a way that the boat, the, the boat, the, the bowl is a lot more stable. Medium, you only get two cubes. Hard, you get one. And so what that does is it allows for the different groups or theoretically even different difficulties per player in an optional game mode. And the way that the cubes fit together in the bowl actually makes it a little more difficult to grab the cube that you want because they kind of stick together in a way. I know there's a lot of ideas that have flown my way about different shaped cubes for monkeys and different shaped cubes for fruit. And what I think would happen in that case would be everything has got jagged edges and so it doesn't stick together, which means you can easily or more easily grab the thing that you're looking for. So I'm actually pretty happy with cubes. Might be a little dry, but I think uh, if a publisher wanted to convince me otherwise, I would certainly listen. Yeah, that's the interesting thing with dexterity games. I mean, you you want things to be thematic, you want them to look great, but it comes down to the, the physical shape, the weight, the texture can all be really important. Like watching the videos of this, like I could see how frustrating it would be in a good way, but I just want to use tweezers to play. Like I don't think I could handle reaching in and grabbing little cubes, but that's, that's the fun of it and the skill. There have been lots of recommendations. What if we played with chopsticks and... <laughs> As someone who uses chopsticks, I think it would be too great an advantage compared to someone who doesn't. There's also been a lot of comments about if you have big hands, you're at a disadvantage. And I think maybe there's some some truth to that. But in general, uh, if you take your time, I think it's a pretty even playing field. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a problem with any dexterity game. To, to a degree, the physical skill is important and it's going to shut out some players no matter no matter what you do if you make it easier one way it's harder another way so there's there's no way to make it great for everyone but it does look really interesting it looks like a lot of fun like i really love the the use of the bowl as the boat very thematic that's a, a problem of of god is that i only have one of these and um i went online and i looked around for more so that i could ship you a Uh, another bowl for the testing and I found some that were similar Um, I ended up buying one that I'm not that happy with Uh, it's it's nice but it's a little too small and a little too heavy so I'll probably just send the original and get it back from you but in terms of if we go to if I were to sell this to a publisher or even self-publish we have to figure out something maybe 
Need to make a trip back to Bangkok and uh, go talk to the monks. Buy a thousand of these bowls. Yeah, so it's a it's a metal bowl, right? It's metal. It's it's actually fairly light, which means it totters a lot. That's what I was going to ask. How much does the weight of the bowl affect the play? Because I imagine if you enter production, most likely the publisher is going to want to make it out of plastic for price reasons and shipping. But do you think like a heavier plastic would be about the same weight you think that would be possible i have no idea i think it would be pretty hard i think you might accomplish something similar with wood but um the feel would be very different so i don't know hopefully uh i'll have to deal with that problem later but until then i'm having a lot of fun playing with it and people seem to like it so yeah i think i've never actually designed a dexterity game i had an idea for one bought a bunch of wood and never got around to making it because actually prototyping a dexterity game is very close to making a production copy because you need the pieces to be exactly how they're going to be otherwise you can't test the dexterity element of it so it's seems like kind of a lot of work on that end right Right. Well, that is about all the time we have. So is there anything else you want to say about your game before we close up? Uh, Just that I've been making uh, some other changes to the rules since my last submission, how to play video. Um, I've tried to streamline and simplify a lot of things. And uh, I think you'll enjoy playing it and looking forward to hearing more feedback and Again, thanks a bunch, Chris. This has been the best contest I've ever entered. All the feedback has been incredible, and thanks for the opportunity. Oh, thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed it. And before we go, you want to give any contact info if anybody wants to follow you online or keep up with the project? Certainly. I'm on Instagram and Facebook, at Corn Castle Games, C-O-R-N, like the vegetable, castle. Um, And look forward to hearing from you and keep it in touch. Awesome. Thanks again for coming on the show. Thanks, Chris. I'm here with Chris Chan, Roswell Saunders, and Chris McMahon, designers of The Night Cage. Guys, welcome to the show. Hello. Hi. So, uh, let's start with how did you start designing games? Have you always been designing together, or is this new, or where did it start? Well, this is our our first game for any of us, and uh, so we've only designed with each other from that standpoint. Uh, I think we we were we were uh, we all worked together, and we were just having lunch one day. We had an idea for uh, a game. We had an idea for a game, or like a basic mechanics that would become the Night Cage eventually. But you know, we uh, we make a lot of things in our, our regular careers, and a lot of those things require oh, we have to get like a person to help with this part, or to do this, or we need an expert in this to develop this piece. And we all kind of looked at each other and it's like, well, what would stop us from just making a board game? Like, we don't need anyone else. We have we have designers amongst the three of us. We can have. Yeah of our skills so we're like we should just go for it instead of just saying wouldn't it be cool if and we actually uh did it yeah uh, just to be clear about what chris means with that because by, by the way hi this is other chris in case that wasn't there's clear. so many chris's on this podcast now um uh we we all uh we all work in advertising um uh Chris and I are work partners in that. Um, I'm an art director. Chris is a copywriter. Ross is also a copywriter, um, though he's more of a creative director at this point, I guess. It's um, fine. We, uh, you got two writers and an art director, so one person that knows how to do stuff, and then the other two. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, um, but yeah, so we kind of just thought this would be a nice project that would we could make without having to bring other people into the equation. So we could kind of have control over it and we could control our own pace and schedule. So like it wouldn't be waiting for someone to finish a piece. It would just be us accountable to ourselves. And that felt really good. Yeah. The funny thing about advertising, too, is, you know, you might not believe this, but uh, you have to make a lot of uh, creative compromises, um, which is, you know, gets old after a while. Like, you know, you're like, I just want to make the thing. Can I just make can't you just let me make the thing the way I want to make it? I promise it'll be better. Um, um, and uh, so this was kind of an opportunity for us to sort of get that out of our system a little bit, you know. Um, but at the same time, all three of us working together sort of builds in the checks and balances that you need in a development process. I think a little I, I, bit. I agree. On a, a little bit on a fast track because you know when we all play together, one we always have a three-player playtest group built in, um, and you know two that means that uh, we we just tend to play a little bit more often because it's like oh we've got enough people to play the game. Let's do it. Yeah. Yeah, and just having like a team built in also just makes it a lot easier to sort of hold one another accountable and just keep everything moving. You know, when it's like maybe two people are like, oh, you know, I should do this thing, but maybe not. And yet the third one rolls in and is like, guys, we got to do the things. Like, shoot, he's right. But uh, yeah, no, it, it, we do. Uh, it, we do kind of have a development process built into the whole thing. Um, it's also really helped that uh, we just know how to just make stuff, and we have a lot of different capabilities. Uh, a lot of the uh, you know support materials beyond even the game itself uh, that just kind of falls into our purview and it's just things that you know kind of come naturally to us and we know mm-hmm. how to do cool it's it's impressive that this is your first game it's very polished looking which I mean I guess comes from your creative background so you're already pretty experienced with that side of it I was going to say that you know part of that you know comes from again making things uh, Chris Jan has done all the artwork for this game and he's a very talented illustrator photographer on top of being a really talented art director so we got very fortunate that we had someone built into the game who could help make sure that everything felt as good as you wanted it to feel. Thanks, Chris. <laughs> and it sounds like a really convenient team to put together. It was, very it convenient was extremely team. convenient. So have you have you been gamers for a long time, or like how'd you get into the hobby? So we have like a spectrum of gaming experience yeah. from very, from pretty heavy gamer to almost no gamer. I've lived a very board game adjacent life. I like to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think the one of uh, the the member of our team who is uh, the heaviest into board games is Chris McMahon. That's me. Um, who uh, definitely uh, has a Dungeons and Dragons group. Um, Pathfinder, actually. Pathfinder, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, guys. It's Pathfinder. Work out a 5e campaign. It'll come together. Even I knew that. Well, (laughs) it's it's such good characters, though. Anyway, uh, I'm a little bit more in the middle between those things. I've I've, I've done hobby games. I have friends uh, who do hobby games. Um, But I, myself, have not been super into it, uh, largely because most of my gaming is video games. And I definitely have a video game background as well, uh, but you know I've definitely got more into into you know board games in college. I had friends who were buying like you know like Catan and Power Grid and a bunch of other games that had all these pieces. Um, and they're all all my all the people were uh, engineers, so we were very analytical about how we approached thinking about those things. Like how does this function? What does this mean? Uh, so in terms of like looking at how a, uh, any kind of game, but board games in particular, are structured, uh, that's something that I think I personally have been doing for a very very long time, just purely as uh, an enthusiast and um, I, I I should mention I, I used to work in a chess store so I think a lot <laughs> about how games no seriously this is actually really important to me like uh, I, I, I think a lot about how games look and feel as artifacts um, 
And, you know, that's something that just as an artist has been something I've wanted to delve into for a long time. And being able to do something that's actually fun to play is, you know, a pretty big bonus. Yeah. So do you find yourself getting more into the hobby now that you've started designing or have you just been more focused on this game and not really spreading out any more than you were before? Well, I would say uh, Ross is probably the biggest change amongst any of us. Uh, like, again, you said it yourself, you were not the biggest board game person before you started. No, and now, by, I think you know more more board games than any of us put together. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that I, I like, academically. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Um, you know, I, I've lived, like, I, you know, I said I, like, had lived a board game adjacent life. I've certainly been very deep into, um, you know, kind of nerd culture and that kind of stuff for, you know, my whole life. And I've, you know, been a big comic book fan and, you know, back before I had children, actually play video games and, uh, you know, those kinds of things. So, like, it was it was a pretty easy thing for me to slide into. But, um, but no, I hadn't been, like, particularly... Uh, well-versed in the hobby, you know, I'd play a little bit of this thing here, that thing there, but very little. Um, but yeah, no, it's been it's been really fun. It's, I actually think the fact that I'm not that deep in it, it is a benefit sometimes because I think um, I can sort of come at, and you know, and we all do this. It's not like I'm like special really, but like I, I, I think I come into it with fresh eyes sometimes where like I don't immediately just like kind of retreat to like the known solution for like a, a design problem. I'll just, you know, start from scratch because I don't know any better. <laughs> yes, yeah, that's a double-edged sword. You can get great ideas and you can also make the same mistakes that 100 other people made. That's true. That's true. If you have a team, that helps. So what uh, what gave you the idea for the Night Cage, which it's kind of a unique theme, very like a light creepy kind of thing you got going sure yeah so, well we're all creepy yeah um <laughs> so for those just real quick for those who don't know it's a, a cooperative game uh and you're exploring a maze together that's lit by individual candles so each player's information is pretty limited but more critically uh the thing that we think is really differentiating this is that as you travel through the maze the parts that you stop illuminating become are lost in the darkness forever and they're gone for the entire game so you come back the way you came you'll be adding whole new pieces of the maze so it's constantly changing being made and unmade as you explore it. So um, I think the the way that the game started, like it, it, it was a very long lunch one time when we probably <laughs> should have been doing work. Um, Don't tell anyone. But um, I think at the time I was, I, I was kind of in the middle of a sort of a board game art piece. And I was talking to these guys about connection games and this book I was reading that was very academic and honestly probably a little tight for the layman. Um, but uh, <laughs> but we started talking about games and some somehow in the process of that we like came up with the core mechanic of the game just there sitting in probably a... That bar's pretty dark, isn't it? It's really dark. It is kind of like a dungeon. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it is, no, it's like legit underground yeah. and, you know, has weird smells and textures um midtown <laughs> yeah yeah midtown all right yeah like yeah around hour three i think we started we're like well you know what if there was like a fog of war in this game <laughs> yeah and, and i remember uh, pretty early on in thinking about it i was thinking about that um uh you know the 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 book uh house of leaves which has sort of like a That's like a an, an impossible kind of labyrinth built into an like a impossible space it's in, like a suburban ranch house that just yeah. has a, se- a secret door with infinity behind it I've I've read about half of it. I hope to finish That's someday. Actually, but it, it's I, dense. I'm right, I'm it right there dense. with you. Yep. I'm yeah. lost in the I'm lost in the House of Leaves myself. Uh, every every <laughs> copy of House of Leaves I've ever had has gone missing, which I think might be just endemic to that kind to the book itself. That's so, part uh, of the story. 
That's how yeah, it goes. Yeah. yeah. No, Chris, I've just got your copy. Oh, do you? Okay. Well, I'm still working solved, through right? it. Yeah. <laughs> you can borrow my copy. But but the concept you know, of like a thing that defies logic and space is sort of interesting, and that definitely inspired a lot of the gameplay decisions to make this feel weird without having to make it like you know classically terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. We wanted to be more kind of the idea for it is to be existential horror, right? And like, so it's supposed to give you. It's not really supposed to scare you. It's but it's supposed to give you a, a feeling of anxiety as you're playing it, right? Uh, yeah. And and it's not really like everyone's like, oh, the scariest thing is like what's in the dark. It's like no, the scariest thing is not knowing what's in the dark, and constantly stressing about it. Um, and that's sort of how we uh, kind of approach the game. Um, and you know. It just kind of, you know, I don't know, it just kind of gelled, it felt right. We started with this little mechanic and then, you know, we kind of thought up this reason for it to exist with the light. And then after that point, everything just sort of, uh, you know, evolved organically out of that yeah. that core idea. And um, we've tried to keep it really tight. Like, we've tried to keep the game as simple as possible. We've tried to give everything a, a, a thematic reason to exist, to not just let it be like, well, wouldn't it be cool? But, well, sure, it might be cool if, but like... Is it does it make the game better? Does it does it does it push you towards that core experience we're trying to give people? And that was kind of that's kind of been the guiding light, so to speak. I, I guess pun intended. Um, well played. Yeah, thank you. I, I would say um, there's actually a nice extension of kind of our advertising background to people who make things. Is there's a discipline in understanding like if we're going to do this, why are we doing this? What does it communicate? To be very critical of our own creative decisions in the process and be non-precious about the ideas we bring to the table. And I think this allows us to keep the game feeling very lean and thematic tight which has been a really people have commented on that and it feels really good to be that it's recognized that it's working that way yeah we uh early on there were a lot of like very different directions for how we were exploring the way that the theme came to life and i am the chief offender of going (laughs) off and making things before they are actually ready to be a thing but we tested them it's fine but that's we do (laughs) that's also how you kind of figure out whether or Mm -hmm. not it's working and if you can do it that's great you know but uh, you know in doing that we really paired away a lot of things that were not thematically relevant Um, and you know when we talk to people to the uh, even now like we 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 get people asking for things that we had like tested and gone oh yeah that that we tried that but it, it it doesn't really mix with what we what we're trying to make yeah, it's not about like whether it worked or didn't work. It's just like, but the experience is, yep. is 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 altered in a way that we feel like, you know, like I get that you wish that you had a sword that you could kill the monster with. The fact that you feel that way is on purpose. You know, like that's part of giving you the experience of like being, you know, naked and afraid with a candle, like running for your life through this, you know, death space. Um, you know, you don't have any way to fight back. Your only way to fight back is to get out. Um, and it to work together. And it, that's the kind of, you know, it forces you to work together. Uh, something else I just want to say real quick, because we've said this word a bunch of times. I hate the word theme. <laughs> because when people mean setting, because I think our game actually has themes. And like I've tried to do, so I have, I have an English degree, hint, hint, uh, if this isn't like coming through here. But like we actually try to have like, like it, it's not like a cohesive specific thing because there's not like a, a, a you know on rails narrative to this but like I do think that we have kind of a point of view that we're trying to to, to give people through playing the game um, that is deeper than just like you know you're in this place or you're this kind of character you know and in fact I, it's also very intentional that you aren't a specific character you are you when you play this game mm-hmm. that's why all of the art is kind of you know has 
you know, that people are naked and kind of, of, of genderless and their and faces faceless, are yeah. and faceless, like, because we want you to feel like you were caught in this space and to think about like, what is that, what would that mean for you if you were in that kind of position? So you've, you've already gone over it a bit, but why don't you go over how the game plays? Uh, you went over like the candle mechanic a bit, but um, just a general overview of it. Basically, yeah, you start with, you're all working together um, and objectively you're trying to explore the maze to find uh, four keys and bring them to uh, the same gate to escape. Um, and again, it's cooperative. Uh, you're finding the... Sorry. It's, it's like it's a gate that has four keyholes that all need to be turned at once, so you also need to have two people. Um, so... The maze itself, as we've mentioned, uh, is explored um, and, and with this candle. And um, the way that it's represented as you explore it is through a stack of tiles that you have that you draw from uh, when you find new spaces and you place them and orient them. And that's where the strategy of the game comes in. Um, but every time that you move, your radius of light moves with you. And so things that aren't there disappear forever. Um, and so you can see this tile pile just dwindling throughout the course of the game. Like your candle and burning down. It's your candle burning down, and it's also just the le- the amount of maze left to explore in the space, um, and that's really the the core thrust of it. There are monsters that mess that up, and there are all sorts of other things like these little pits that um, can be very frightening, but also end up being very tactical things. Um, and you know, just you have to manage other players and work together. Um, in terms of like the mechanic stuff, we were talking about this a little bit. Um, one thing we actually just came back from um, PAX Unplugged, and we did a ton of testing there. Um, if yeah, you we did a lot us, of testing there. You saw God. us there. Thank you for testing. We really appreciate everyone who came out for that. Yeah. Uh, but one of the things we wanted to test, and this came up, um, you know, between the feedback of people who have played and from the feedback from the previous round of this contest of like, how do we make the the maze feel threatening, the monsters and the hazards feel like a real danger without taking players out of the game or making it just feel like a slap on the wrist. Um, and we actually feel like we found a really good compromise about the way that functions. Um, and we actually, it fits in the theme of the game that now the when you get you know attacked by a monster or run into a hazard, you actually lose the light of your candle temporarily. So your teammates have to come and bring that light back to you. And we really like how elegant that feels, that it feels like it's part of the way the game mechanics function. It's cooperative. Your teammates are helping you with it. But it still feels like a real penalty to being caught in the wrong place at the wrong time. So so uh, that's that'll hopefully be, that'll be revised when you guys get the the playable version for the final round. You'll see all the benefits of the uh, testing we, we've been doing over the past few weeks. I really enjoy co-ops, so I'm glad that there's one in the finals. So this should be fun. And speaking of, there are only five co-ops and one semi-co-op in the whole contest, as far as I can tell, based on their descriptions. So. What was it like working on a co-op? Although I guess it's the only game you've worked on, so you don't have anything to compare it to. So it's it's interesting from a co-op perspective because one, you like said there are not that many co-op games. There's a couple of like titans in the industry, but for the most part, games tend to go into competitive. Which we like those kind of games too. I like a good uh, competition as much as anyone. But it's nice to have a game that people who you know are not a competitive person can jump into. I think it expands the the people you can bring to game night. If you have games you can play together and share in that experience. Um, in terms of development. I think it's making sure that everyone feels like they are part of the process, that they're part of the solution you come up with as a team, that they're doing something valuable to the process. Um, I think that's the biggest design goal that's specific to the cooperative, I think, that we uh, kind of feel. In terms of development, uh, it's a matter of intention. A lot of people have you know, suggested this could be a really 
interesting competitive game. And I think we've been trying to find a way into that. But our priority is like this is going to be a cooperative game. We we know that it is. We feel that it is. And we want to make sure that's the tightest possible version of that before we add the competitive element if that comes around. I, I also just think the way that the, the core mechanics are put together that it, it really just wanted it wanted to be cooperative. I mean, this game, everything about this game is pitted against you. Um, it's literally a cardboard torture device. So, um, no, that makes it sound not fun. It's super fun. <laughs> it's super fun. Cut that part out. It is fun. Um, it is fun. So, uh, I, I, but no, but yeah. but but the, the because it's supposed to be this really like stark kind of situation you're in, like like the odds are stacked against you. And so I think um, it just kind of wanted to move in that direction. Yeah. Not to mention a lot of the core strategies and the way the game has been kind of put together would be. Um, I think it would be a lot more challenging and, and wouldn't work as smoothly if it was cooperative because like the game is like like the strategic part of it you know on its surface you you want to think that it's like this spatial reasoning game right because it's like a maze and tunnels and stuff but that's not really what it is you know it's a game of 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 probabilities and it's also a game of sort of working the mechanics and the limitations in a way to your advantage you know like we talk you know the mechanics are all talked about like with this light you know and what it can show you and what it can't show you but a big part of it is learning how to like work that darkness and make it make it change the maze the way you want it to be or need it to be and trying to like look at both sides of the coin like that um and i think that if you were trying to you know kind of work against each other thwart each other while trying to do that it would it would probably feel pretty overwhelming which isn't to say we couldn't do that later on but right now the game that we're trying to make is cooperative and you know has really been geared to that from day one i I think the other thing just to add one last thing about co-op with this is that we want to play a game that we want to play together consistently when we develop as a team and i think as we develop the game and make the game you know into the game that we want it to be it's got to feel fun for all of us and we've got to feel like we're taking on this particular challenge of designing this thing as well as this having fun during the experience so it i think that's been important for us as a team i agree with that and just uh you know i guess it sounds kind of biased but as a person who has played who played uh, 18 hours of this game continuously over the last weekend uh it's still fun we're still having a good time playing this game (laughs) that's good to hear so that's about all the time we have. Is there anything else you want to say before we close up? Uh, yeah, um, just uh, uh, we're, I hope you guys will check our thing out, uh, vote for it in the contest. Uh, honestly, we're honored just to get to this point so you can hear our voices and uh, and hear our story a little bit. We like to hear ourselves talk, so this is a huge reward. <laughs> uh, also, we're going to be, um, we just we just figured out our bookings for uh, PAX South, so we're going to be there in the middle of January 18th, I guess. We'll be there all yep. weekend, so uh, hopefully you get a chance to see our game uh, at PAX South if you didn't mm. make it to PAX Unplugged. Down Texas way. That's what they. That's how they talk down there, right? No. Um, no. They don't. No, they that, don't. They don't. I can say that because I'm from the South, so I can like, <laughs> you know, I don't have boots. <laughs> so we should get you some boots over there. We'll get some made. I've got boots that are big enough for both of us, Ron. I mean, I don't have cowboy boots. Right now, no, I'm wearing they're, boots. They're, they're, they're like, boots. yeah, it's they're like a different kind knees. of boots. They're like urban boots. I should wear those to the con. Oh, you should. Oh, you should definitely wear those boots. Uh, guys, we're going way over time. All right. All right. This is our podcast now. <laughs> I mean, I, I generally go off the rails in every episode, so I knew it would happen eventually. So, yeah, I just want to end it with any uh, contact info if anybody wants to follow along and follow the project after the contest. Yeah, uh, totally. So, we're active on uh, Twitter. Twitter, so you can find us at at Night Cage Game. Same um, on Instagram as well. Same on Instagram. We have a, like a like combined with like a mighty hundred followers. <laughs> 
everyday we're getting there and, all right uh, we're getting there website we have uh nightcagegame.com or just the night cage is fine the nightcage.com will take you there um we have uh, a mailing list we're looking to figure out our, our publication options so if you're interested in this we'd love to have you sign up for that we're basically we don't have time to write like a newsletter about what we're about like what we have for breakfast and stuff so if you're interested in this and you want to find out uh if or when a kickstarter comes out or what the options are going to be we'll let you know if you put your name on there I'm not sure what breakfast has to do with that. He's not a little like get little. I know, I more. know. We're not going to spam you, is what he's trying to say. <laughs> this is why the Chris's need a Ross. <laughs> well, thank you guys for coming on the show, and good luck in round three. Oh, thank you, Chris. Awesome, thanks, thanks Chris. Thank Appreciate it. That's all for this episode. The Board Game Workshop is a member of the Indie Game Report. Check out their reviews and interviews at theindiegamereport.com. Thank you to all of our Patreon supporters, especially our inventor-level supporters, Chris Turner, Alan D. Eckert, Brad Batchelor, and Roscoe Shop. If you'd like to support the show, go to patreon.com slash theboardgameworkshop. You can follow the show on Twitter at TheBGWorkshop and on Facebook at TheBoardGameWorkshop. And join the show's Discord channel to discuss episodes. You can get links to all of these and the show notes for all episodes at theboardgameworkshop.com. Thanks for listening.